So as Nick has already said, um, when we're talking about the resurrection on Easter, we're talking about a literal resurrection. Now, people skeptical of such things and later, uh, even within the confines of the, of the greater Christendom of the church, wanted to turn this something into a metaphor, like expressing the hope of those who follow Jesus. But that's not how it's presented, and nor thou have that, that's not how it's been confessed. And what I hope to demonstrate today, why it's absolutely necessary that we embrace with faith the reality of the resurrection. Because the resurrection is central, it's foundational. In fact, it is the essence of the message of Christianity. The famous words from Paul in chapter 15 of, uh, of the letter to the Corinthians. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, empty, meaningless, purposeless. And your faith is in vain. What are you believing in? We are even bound to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, we are still in our sins. Now, certainly a lot of modern folks, and well, not just modern folks, I mean, goodness gracious, throughout all the generations, people have been skeptical of this claim on the part of Christianity. But we heard from that language in Luke, right, when the women went back and said to Peter and the others, said, listen, Jesus is not in the tomb. He's not there. And we were told that he's not a, no longer among the dead, but among the living. He's, he's, he's risen. And they thought it was idle tales. They had to go themselves to see. Even these who had walked with Jesus and heard what he had said about how he was going to fulfill the scriptures and rise again on the third day. She got to be kidding me. This is nonsense. Those things don't happen. But it did happen. And that's why this day is so important. Uh, there's a poem there at the beginning of the bulletin by George Herbert. In the last little bit, can there be any day but this, though many suns to shine endeavor? We count 300, but we miss. There is but one, and that one. Indeed, this is the most important day of any human calendar. This day when we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. Talk about it, we're going to use that opening language from Romans. And again, it's kind of an odd choice. We might have gone to that first Corinthians passage. We might have gone to the Gospel of Luke or any of the other Gospels. We talked about the resurrection. But we're going to use these opening words from Paul's letter to the apostle. It's, it's a dense set of, of, of verses, and we're not going to spend a lot of time pulling all of it apart. But what it does is it sets the stage for really what unfolds in his letter. And we're going to use it as a stepping off point for our consideration <laughs> of the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul takes the resurrection literally. And why does he do that? Well, not just because he's heard about it, because he was confronted with the living Christ on the road to Damascus, if you know that story. Right? He had received letters from the priests to go and gather these people who were following this false messiah, this troublemaker, and to bring them down, bring them back to Jerusalem. He might be tried, even put to death. And while he's on his way, with those letters in hand, Jesus confronts him. And he doesn't see him materially, but he hears his voice from heaven. And in that exchange, Paul is absolutely persuaded that indeed Jesus has truly risen from the dead, and that he is the one to whom he should be pointing all people. So, the resurrection, 
We're going to consider it four ways, how it verifies, how it vindicates, how it vanquishes, and because we need another V, how it vivifies. <laughs> so first, let's consider how it verifies. What does Paul write? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, for Paul, and for those to whom he was speaking, scriptures, God's word, was authoritative. It carried weight. If it was in the word of God, that it had to be true. In fact, they were held as sacred. That's why he calls them holy scriptures. Now, by claiming that the gospel he preaches has its foundation in the acknowledged authoritative God-given writings, means that he is asserting that, that it is true, that the gospel is true. Now, it's one thing, it's one thing to claim it's true, it's another thing to prove it. That is, it's one thing to claim that the scriptures uphold the message that he's preaching, and by the scriptures he means what we call the Old Testament, it's another thing to prove it. And in this letter, and in others, he draws upon Genesis, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Joel, Hosea, Isaiah, Habakkuk, Ezekiel, in short, the law and the prophets to establish the validity of his message. And we see it in action. For instance, in Acts chapter 17, it says, when they had passed through all and through the Amphipolis and Apollonia, they, became, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining, proving, what is he explaining and proving? That it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He is the Messiah. So the scriptures verify the expectation of the resurrection. And Jesus' resurrection verifies that he is the one to be expected. And we can add to that that his resurrection also verifies Jesus' own words. Right? When he predicted, we heard that uh, echo again in Luke chapter 24. He predicts that he would rise from the dead on the third day. And if what he said about that is true, well, perhaps everything else he said is true. So the resurrection verifies. It verifies the truth of what God has spoken and therefore verifies the truthfulness of God himself. God the Father speaks truly because he is true. And Jesus speaks truly because he is true. The proof of that is in the resurrection. The resurrection, we also would say, vindicates. Listen again, Paul's language. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Two descriptions there. Descended from David according to the flesh, and declared or appointed to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection. And why these two particular descriptives? Well, we learn from the Old Testament that indeed God had made a covenant with David, that someone would sit upon his throne, sit upon King David's throne. Listen to this language from 2 Samuel. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, 
and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is echoed again in Psalms 89. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And in Jeremiah, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal with him. See, this was the messianic expectation. The Messiah was going to come from the line of David. He was going to be made to sit upon this throne, quote unquote, forever. So what might have been this poetic expression of the durability of David's line is given literal fulfillment by Jesus being raised from the dead. Jesus, as we learned in the genealogies, descends from the line of David. He can be called the son of David. But this idea of one sitting upon that throne forever, how could that be? How could one mortal being be on the throne forever? Possible. We all die. But there is one who, through his resurrection, indeed inherits that place of reign and authority and does so eternally. Paul says he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That term could be also declared instead of declared, be appointed son of God. And that would be, therefore, a term understood as the Messiah. And he comes in power. He is a king with full authority and power to reign. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. So these two descriptives, son of David and this son of God, the Messiah, who sits on the eternal throne of David, these stand in stark contrast to what was claimed about Jesus prior to his resurrection. We use language from Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. You know what happens there, right? That Jesus has died. They've been told to wait until the Spirit induces them with power that they're going to be witnesses to Jesus throughout all the world. And while they're waiting and waiting and praying, and then finally the Spirit falls upon them, there's a great rustle that's going on in Jerusalem. They all flood to see, and Peter stands up and begins to preach. And he tells them what's really going on. They think maybe they're all drunk. No, no, they're not drunk. This is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, that people will be endued with power to prophesy for the half of God. And then he goes on to say this, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, by mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Being there, he talks about now about David, uh, Peter does, and he goes on to say, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, a reflection of Psalm 16 that we read. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. See, this evidence of the Holy Spirit coming declares that indeed Jesus had been raised from the dead, he had ascended to the right hand of God, and he has poured out his spirit as he has promised. And so Peter concludes, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah, this Jesus, 
whom you crucified. See, the resurrection vindicates Jesus. They thought him to be nothing but a rabble rouser, nothing but trouble for Rome, nothing but trouble for the Jews. That he was some false messiah, some aberrant sect of Judaism. But in fact, in fact, he was indeed the risen Lord. He was indeed the Messiah, the one whom God had sent, the chosen one, the promised one. And so the resurrection, because the grave could not hold them, through that work of God, Jesus is vindicated. The resurrection also vanquishes. Listen again to Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, who was declared to be the son of God in the power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus rose from the dead. And as Paul says elsewhere in the letter of Romans, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Death has no claim upon Jesus. But this is true for Jesus, and it is true for all those who place their lives into his care. You might recall the incident when a friend of Jesus dies, Lazarus. And so he's told about this, and he waits to make sure that Lazarus is dead. And then he finally shows up, and the two sisters of Lazarus come, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus responds. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Something about the death and resurrection of Jesus vanquishes the power of death. Listen to what Paul again says from 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that is, we shall not all remain dead, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The resurrection of Jesus vanquishes death. Death no longer has the final say. It no longer has the power that it has over those people who so fear death. We can, we can know that because of Christ's own resurrection, we too will be raised. Now, that doesn't mean that between now and then, we don't still suffer the, 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 the indignity, the pain, the sorrow that comes with sin and leads to death. But death has been dealt a death blow. Listen to this. Christ's heel is planted on death's neck. Death cannot breathe. And this space in which we grieve is but the long exhale of death's last expiring breath. This age of passing sorrows is but the long death rattle of death itself. The outcome bears no hint of doubt. The work is done. The victory is won. So death will be undone. All works of death will be undone. The resurrection of Jesus vanquishes death. But it also Vivifies. Listen once again to this passage. 
called, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we, that is Paul and his fellow colleagues, have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome, all those in Rome who are loved by God are called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the resurrected Christ, Paul and his fellow apostles have received grace. They received grace to preach the gospel, which, as we've learned, is the message of the resurrected Christ. Without the resurrected Christ, there is no message to preach. And they preach it in order to bring people to faith and to build people, people them up in their faith, all to the glory of Christ. And in this way, I'm suggesting that the resurrection vivifies. It brings life. This is going to express itself in a couple of different ways. But hear this word first from Romans chapter 8. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, as Peter said on Pentecost, right? It was God who raised Jesus from the dead. If that same spirit dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This risen Christ, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, that, that spirit of God dwells in each believer and brings life. It vivifies we poor dead souls. And it does so in two ways. First, through our sanctification, and secondly, through our glorification. Listen to this long passage from Romans chapter 6, how it's tied in. How it is that our new life in Christ, our ability to live as we would created to live, as we've been redeemed to live, comes to our union with Christ's death and resurrection. Paul says, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? What does he mean? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we no longer are enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Yeah? You hear that transformation from the old self to the new, who you were prior to Christ, before Christ, and who you are after Christ? 
that we really do have power within us through our union with Christ to live as though our bodies were dead. I'm not suggesting, you know, perfection in this life. I'm talking about sanctification, what the Bible calls sanctification. Remember when Paul writes to Rome, what did it say? Called to be saints. And what's a saint? A saint is not just someone who's been canonized and done special miracles. A saint is someone who's been set apart. That's what a person is in Christ. They are set apart. They're saints. And saints live sanctified lives, saint-like lives. And again, that's not perfection, but it's a life that reflects the fact that we are in union with Christ. And the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that new life that he lived after he comes out from the grave, is the life that you and I can now live because of our union with him. And so this process is what we call sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus, more and more who we are in Christ. Is something effected for us by the resurrection, the life of the resurrection in us. And this also then leads to what we call glorification. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Right? That's, that's what we're being done. We're being conformed to the image of Jesus in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul is looking at the end game. And, and he's looking at it as, as though it's in the present, as though it's secure, it's done. We will indeed, because of Jesus' resurrection, we will stand before him in glory one day. And between now and then, as we learn, death, as Christ has his heel on death the neck and, and, and struggling to breathe, its last gasps. But at that time, death will be no more, totally vanquished, and we will be glorified with Christ. This resurrection, this vivification that accomplishes, that's been accomplished through Christ's own resurrection, our union with him, and that resurrection life in us causes us to be able to look with confidence on what lays before us. Paul goes on in Romans 8, what shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge, any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Now listen, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, Paul says. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, yes, yes, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We regarded the sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. For I am persuaded, I am sure, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think it's important that in the middle of that just glorious statement of, of confidence that we have and that God's love secures us for that eternal glorification is that we can have confidence because we are God's elect, but 
that Christ died for our sins. But more than that, he says, he was raised. Indeed, it is in his resurrection that is our hope of eternal life. It's that resurrection that, that, that will enable us to live there, will truly vivify us, cause us to live for eternity in these bodies immortal and imperishable. You saw the title of this message is this, this day's potency. Can you sense the potency of this day? There is power in Easter because there's power in the resurrection. The resurrection is the power to verify the truthfulness of God's word and therefore God himself. If we had any doubts as to whether God understands our need, if we, if we doubt his word that tells us of his love for, for sinful humanity, we can believe it. Because Jesus rose from the dead, just as he said he would. God sent his only begotten son, his only son, so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That everlasting life comes through his resurrection. And we say that there's potency, there's power, because it vindicates the truthfulness of God. It vindicates who Jesus is. We have every reason to hope to place our confidence in him. Far from being a failed leader of some divergent sector of Judaism. One who threatened, as I said, the peace of Rome, the peace of the Jews. The resurrection proves him to be, as Peter declared, the son of David, the son of God. And though he was judged as a blaspheming sinner worthy of death, he was, in fact, exalted at the right hand of God as both Lord and Christ. Resurrection vindicates Jesus. Or perhaps most potently, most extraordinarily, the resurrection vanquishes death. It represents a total victory over death. Because Jesus accomplishes a total victory over sin. Sin and death are vitally connected. And remember, there's a strange thing to say that they're vitally connected, but they are. We live in death, but in Christ, we can live in life. We, we suffer under our sin, and, and, and we feel the weight of it. Even with our union with Christ, we know we struggle, as we learned, we talked about earlier. That's the way we have to exist from here until that day. But we have confidence that death is vanquished. It has no claim upon Jesus and has no claim upon those who are in Jesus. Lastly, this potency is, is indicated through its vivification, through its life-giving power that it grants us. Jesus is alive and he gives us his life. You might be familiar with C.S. Lewis when he talks about the difference between bios life and zoe life. Right, the bios life is the one that we all share. Everybody walking around the street, we all have biological life. But Zoe life is life that's in Christ. And he says, if you want Zoe life, you've got to get close to him. So it'll splash up on you. And that's what we want to be. We want to be close to this risen Jesus. Because we want his life in us. We want Zoe life. We want that kind of light that emanates from heaven and comes into a dark world and brings light and life to all of such potency in this day. Potency for a sinner to be known, to have confidence that the sin has been canceled. That's been dealt with on the cross. We talked about that on Good Friday. But to know not just that Jesus died, but, but almost more importantly, as Paul says, more than that, that he knows. 
And so that, that sin, which holds a, a sinner, a human being captive in the grave, which as it held Jesus in the grave, seemingly everybody standing and watching, oh, that's it. We're done. We got rid of that guy. And those who love Jesus, they're crying over in the corner saying, what happened to the one that they love? That's it. That's the grave. It's the end. Jesus comes back to life. The stones rolled away. The body's not there. They don't get it. Where did he go? And he presents himself, says, look, I'm still alive. Come, touch my hands. Touch my side. See that indeed it is me. I am alive from the dead. And Thomas, looking upon that who first doubted, says, my Lord and my God. And he knew that this one who had risen from the dead had, had dealt with all sin, had dealt with death. And he, and now, through his faith in Jesus, he too That's the potency of Easter. That's the potency of this day. You can live eternally with Christ. And I pray for all of us that that hope will take root deep within us. It will not be shaken. And there are many things, many things in this world that would want to shake that faith. That, 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 you know, the, the reality of, of our resurrection and, and the people who scoff and the people who mock or the way in which the world presents itself still in its death throes. All of these things can really undermine our confidence in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. But we have eyewitness accounts. You know, in that same uh, uh, passage from 1 Corinthians, when, when Paul is, is arguing with people, who say there's no resurrection from the dead. Well, there's no resurrection from the dead. Jesus didn't rise, you're still in your sin. But he said, you know, he presented himself. And it's over 500 people. It's like, you see, just, just do a survey, would you? Just go walk around a little bit. Go talk to a few people. You'll find out that they saw him in the flesh. They touched him. They ate with him. They conversed with him. They worshiped him. This is the one who brings life to us this day. That's why this is a day of potency of real power, power for new life, power for eternal life, power over sin. It's all coming from Jesus, the risen Lord, and in him we place our hope.